listener, and welcome to That Implementation Science Podcast, the show that aims to reduce the innovation to implementation gap to 16 and a half years. I'm your host, Mike Pullman, and on today's show, co-host Kevin King and I will talk to our friend and colleague, Jill Locke, about the nexus of implementation science, autism, and educational settings. Along the way, we'll discuss community engagement strategies to ensure that your approach to implementation fits the context you're working in. And Jill will play in our quiz for her shot to win Kevin King writing her next out-of-office auto-reply. She told us she loves Disney songs, so let's see if she, and you, can finish the lyrics to several famous songs. If you want to talk to us, we're on Twitter. I'm at ThatISPodcast, and Kevin is at KMKing underscore psych. We had such a great time talking to Jill. I think you're really going to like today's show. Without further ado, let's get started. everyone and welcome to that implementation science podcast we are your hosts i'm mike pullman and i'm kevin king and today we are here with here with jill Locke. we're so excited to talk to jill today jill is an associate professor and the co-director of the school mental health assessment research and training center or the smart center at the university of washington her work is focused on implementation and sustainment of evidence-based practices in inclusive school settings specifically autism interventions and supports Her work has been funded by foundations, the National Institutes of Mental Health, and the Institute of Education Sciences. Jill, it's so good to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Mike and Kevin. How are you doing? What's been going on? Uh, Do you really want a truthful answer to that? (laughs) Sure, throw it at us. Uh, Life has been rough this week. We had our car breakdown. We had the dog go to the vet. His uh, litter mate suddenly passed away from leukemia. So um, it was nice that the owner let us all know. Um, and so anyway, it's been rough. And then the kids are finally healthy back in school and back with childcare. But anyway, I'm just pay- playing catch up on a lot of things, as as you can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I know you were perpetually busy having two small children and being the co-director of an institute and running all these uh, uh, all these various research projects. You have a, you're a very, very busy person. I try to be. <laughs> yeah. So thanks so much for being on the show and taking the time. Really appreciate it. Uh, yeah. So I've worked with Jill, just to let everyone know, I've worked with Jill for many years now. I can't remember the first time that we met, but I think we've worked together for at least 11 years, probably before my son was born. I'm not sure. I think you over-remember. Uh, it was 2014 when we met. Um, I remember very, very okay. um, clearly. Um, Because we had just moved here to Seattle and uh, Aaron extended an invitation for me to come to the Smart Center. And that's where I met you at a faculty meeting um, a long time ago and knew that this was the bunch that I wanted to hang out with because they shared my love of doing research in schools. And yeah, you were just so brilliant back then. I was like, that guy is going to be on my grant. Well, I think the thing is, I just, I just sort of look like a methodologist that you used to work with. So you're assigning all of his traits to me, which has been really beneficial for me. It's great. That's, that's partially true too. Kevin, have you met Jill before? I can't remember. So Jill and I, uh, the earliest email I can find is from 2015. 
So Jill and I at least have worked remotely together on uh, at least one grant, if not more, uh, via Aaron Lyon for, for that long. I, and Jill, I apologize, my memory for faces and especially prior meetings is horrid. I'm not sure if this is the, ever the first time we've actually seen each other, at least in a, like a one-on-one or a small group interaction. Maybe we've been on video calls before, but to me, this feels like a first meeting, but I'm guessing this is not. That happens to me all the time. So correct me, correct the record here. Do you really want me to tell you? Oh, of course I do. <laughs> yes, because it's so, probably super embarrassing. One of the fun facts that you'll learn about me is I used to have a memory like an elephant. It has gone away some um, since the two children. Um, but Kevin, we met in person a long time ago. I used to come over to Guthrie where you guys were a lot when I was um, working with Shannon and Dorsey. And we met in person, but we also would do these conference calls by phone on the um, Inner Organizational Alignment Project, which was an R21 that we um, are co-investigators on. But the fun fact is you would always confuse me with Mylene, who was another (laughs) faculty member at the Smart Center. So anytime she spoke, you would be like, that's a great idea, Jill. And then anytime I spoke, you'd be like, "Mm, no, Mylene. And then like... (laughs) I would love it because I would get credit for Mylene's brilliance. <laughs> that's so amazing. Uh, that's awesome. So we have met in person, but most of our interaction has been on phone. Yes. So the confusion I have is about your voices. That is, that's just absolutely. <laughs> wow. I, I will take full ownership of that. I uh, frequently, especially across lots of collaborations, I just, I just embarrassingly have a hard time tracking uh, who's who if I don't have sort of lots of sustained interactions in person with people. Yeah. Actually, you know, this does remind me of a story. We were at, uh, we were at Pat Aryan's house, and a colleague who whose name will not be mentioned here said to Jill, like, "Oh, it's so nice to meet you." <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know that we've had a chance to 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 meet before. And you guys went to graduate school together, is that right? Something like that? No, we were at the same institution um, for many, many years. And he had said the same thing to me then. Like he well, always says, it's like so nice to meet you. Yes. Well, so you I know told what? Mike, I told Mike, I'm just very forgettable. And I should have been like an assassin in a different life because nobody would have guessed that I would have been a spy or something like that. He also said that to me, and I didn't say to him, we've submitted a grant proposal together as co-PIs. <laughs> I feel so, better. Yeah, I feel like that's that's probably the worst thing. Like we've actually applied for funding, and you forget who I am. Right, right. <laughs> I'm guessing you weren't funded then, Mike. <laughs> no, no, we were not funded. We were not funded. A small little internal grant. We were <laughs> we were match made through someone else. Um, well, Jill, it's so nice to have you on the show. I'm so excited to talk to you about your work. I'm involved in a little bit of your work, but not very much. So I'm 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 really looking forward to uh, hearing more. Um, but before we get started with that, I am kind of curious. We've been asking the guests on our show if they have any kind of ideas around like what we should name this show. And curious yeah. if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, I was thinking long and hard, and naming things is not my forte. Uh, but I thought we could have a play on um, uh, some alliteration. <laughs> so I decided maybe you all should be the impressive, important implementation innovators. <laughs> Ooh, the, the, the I, I to the fifth power. That's good. I well, thought... we could drop the important and you can be the impressive implementation innovators and then call yourselves I cubed. 
but yeah. like ice cubed. <laughs> ice cubed. <laughs> it works on so many levels. I love it. I mean, if you get it out into four eyes, we could just be four eyes. I love that. Which would fit. Yeah. That's even better. For those of you listening at home and not watching the video, Mike and I both wear glasses. I do the- too. I'm just not wearing them today. <laughs> I figure my get my glasses increase my salary by at least five thousand dollars a year. <laughs> so consider that your name. All right, name. that's good. That's good. Any <laughs> any other ideas? I like that name. I like that name. Mm, I think that's all I've got. All right, all right, that's good. <laughs> well, thank you. We will we'll take that into consideration. What we're wait, what in- were some of the others that were on the on the table? Oh, they were terrible. We had Aaron Lyon <laughs> on, and he just. He couldn't think of a single clever acronym to save his life. So I don't think I, we probably shouldn't embarrass our prior guests um, with revealing the secrets of their terrible, terrible ideas. I would say like I cubed is, is one of the best, especially if there's a way we could work in ice cubed in yeah. there. Yeah. Um, but I feel like that's, if anything, that's a productive start. And as I talk to my students all the time, really the most important thing is not the generation of ideas or work, but it's the editing of them. So I feel like you've given us a really solid foundation to work from. Well, great. I'm very pleased to be that person. Thanks for that, Jill. Okay, so I'm really curious. uh, I'd love to get uh, started around talking about some of your work. So a lot of your work centers in this kind of nexus of interventions, uh, school interventions, with um, autistic individuals uh, and the application of implementation science. And actually, before we talk about that, I think a lot of people don't know about person-centered language and identity-centered language for autistic individuals. Could you briefly kind of give us a quick overview of that? Yeah, there's just been um, sort of a debate in the field in terms of person-first, meaning that you're saying the individual with autism, or if you're saying identity-first, meaning you're saying autistic individual. Um, And so there's been sort of a shift more recently to move to the identity first to really acknowledge that that is a core foundation and piece of that person. Um, So a lot of self-advocates and autistic individuals prefer to use identity first language. And so that's kind of what we've been using and shifting toward. Um, And yeah, I think that's what I'll use today. So uh, why don't you describe kind of some of the projects that you're doing right now in this area? Do you want me to talk a little bit about how I got here or just dive straight into the projects? Mm, either way, whatever, whichever direction you want to talk. Yeah. So I feel like I've been pulling on this thread for a lot of my career and it came from a personal sort of interest in autism. Um, I have a family member that's on the autism spectrum and uh, in uh, college uh, when we were kind of figuring out her diagnosis and understanding a little bit more about her, I also was teaching preschool and had about three autistic boys come through my classroom in some way, shape or form. And they were all so very different and I had no clue how to best support them. And a strategy that worked with one of those boys didn't work with the other. And it was just really hard for the staff and really confusing in terms of their day-to-day care for us to figure out how to best support them and uh, the family. So that's kind of what got me interested in autism. And then um, in graduate school, I spent a lot of time developing interventions in schools to support children directly. And we finished, you know, in R01, we finished another um, foundation grant from some pilot money. And we just realized that once we leave, we can do these interventions. We see these outcomes improve in a lot of our autistic children in terms of their social outcomes and behavioral outcomes. But once we leave, nobody picks it up when we're gone. 
And so that really is what brought me to implementation science and really learning a little bit more about how can we get these practices and supports to sustain in the setting where we want them to be used. And for me, that's in schools because it just allows everybody access. You don't have to be able to go somewhere, travel somewhere, pay for a service. It's part of your public education. So it was just the, the natural place for me to think about how do we increase supports that are quality supports and help um, make the, the day, everyday lives of the educators a little bit easier. You know, Jill, as I'm hearing about this, I, I'd be curious if you could just help us understand First of all, what are the um, challenges that schools face in teaching and training or teaching, educating and um, helping uh, support autistic kids in the classroom? Yeah, so I think it's going to vary and look different. So I'm going to talk in a little bit of generality, if that's okay. So I think one of the common challenges that we see um, from a lot of educators and hear from a lot of educators is that oftentimes they have a hard time basically carrying on with their lessons or, you know, whatever instructions happening because there's quote unquote disruptions that are happening. Um, so an autistic student um, might have some challenges kind of inhibiting uh, some interruptions. If it's a class-wide instruction, they might uh, be asked to do something and protest or be quote unquote like non-compliant. Um, so that has been, I think, a challenge for educators to help them attend and also to be able to address the rest of the class. We typically hear that from a lot of the quote unquote general education classrooms or mainstream classrooms um, where there's oftentimes one autistic student, maybe two or three, and the rest of the class is quote unquote neurotypical. Um, so, so that's been one of the challenges that we've seen. Um, we've also heard from educators that a lot of these students prefer to be solitary or prefer solitary activities. So it's been challenging getting them integrated into group activities or um, at recess time, helping them make friends or support their friendship and social development. So that's been challenging as well. Um, and then, you know, thinking through more of the um, self-contained classrooms or um, children that are a little bit more impacted by their autism. They might also have some outward externalizing behaviors um, like a mild aggression or um, throwing of objects. Um, and so that actually might cause more um, um, of an issue for the educators as well. Yeah, it's going to vary. It's going to vary based on the students, on the setting, um, and what um, I guess is expected um, in that placement. Sure. And, and all of those behaviors, or at least mo a, a lot of the behaviors that you're describing of disruption and aggression, you know, maybe le a little less of social isolation, but even then, you know, it seems like the challenge in a group school context is you have this big group of kids and you kind of want them to be doing, you know, engaging in your routine and doing things at the same time. And any one kid, not, you know, not to mention multiple kids sort of not going along with that or disrupting that routine is probably incredibly challenging. So, so then you, you know, you worked, you were saying you worked with these interventions and brought them in. And then I'm, I'm you know, I'm guessing it addresses all of those things in a wonderful way. What are then the barriers to people for keep, to keep doing them? Like, tell us about where the, you know, what are the challenges that, that people face when you, once that team is leaving? And I, I guess maybe talk about how your implementation work is addressing those barriers. Yeah, that's a great question. And I also forgot to mention some of the communication challenges that um, our students might have as well. And so that might make it hard for an educator to really understand what they might need or what they might want in that moment. Um, so, so some sure. of the interventions that we've brought in um, or that schools have been using really do address pieces of those um, components. But I think some of the challenges that we've seen um, 
Goodness, where do I start? Um, so I think the most common challenge we see is often time, right? So how do I get make time to do this intervention, especially if it's one-to-one with an autistic student? So that's been a really um, big challenge for a lot of educators to make that space in their schedules to do these interventions. But I think a little bit more globally, I think what we're hearing is um, um, a lot of things. There's a staffing issue. So if I'm spending this time with a student who's watching the rest of my class or working with the other students, or if I'm doing this intervention at recess, do I have staff to send out there? Or if this intervention's in a general education classroom, do I have staff to put there? And then we're also hearing some things around just um, uh, educational support. So if um, there are resources available to do these interventions, are the materials available? Who's making those materials, especially if they're visual supports or things like that, or a reinforcement system, who's making that? And then we hear about some leadership challenges as well. How does my principal or my other teachers or my you know, colleagues support the use of this intervention? So we're seeing some sort of organizational level um, um, factors there as well. And then I think a lot of times it's the heterogeneity of autism that is really perplexing for a lot of educators in terms of like this strategy worked for my student that I had this year or last year, and I'm using the same strategy for this current student, but it's not working. And so really understanding that full picture of autism, I think is challenging and it requires a lot of clinical judgment and oftentimes our educators educators don't have that level of training or that level of understanding or expertise. And so it's really challenging to really think about how do we pick the strategies and supports that are going to match that student that I'm supporting this year. So I, I just kind of rattled off a lot of th different things, and I don't know that one is more important than the other. I think it's kind of this whole issue. Um, but one thing that I'm sure you both are aware of that these autism interventions often are quite complicated and complex. So they have a lot of moving parts and a lot of requirements in terms of data collection, in terms of assessment and monitoring, in terms of materials. And so that can be quite challenging to do in a public school setting. Um, and so we need to really rethink how these interventions fit in the schools and also how we can simplify them, because I think at this point, less is more. So are you saying that the interventions that we develop at our university clinics with you know, it delivered by PhD graduate students who do nothing but deliver that intervention, that we make them too complicated and too difficult for people who don't have years of expertise and training to do as they do everything else in their normal jobs and daily lives. This is just a stunning development. <laughs> well, also, they don't have someone scary like you or me or Mike supervising them and making sure they're following that manual to the T, right? So we also think about, you know, are, are these educators using these interventions with quote unquote fidelity and what does that look like and how do these interventions need to be adapted or modified to fit the setting to fit the student to fit the classroom etc right because so, yeah. it's not it's not just about the you know the capacity that we assume that, could, that uh, somebody could do it with the right training and supports and structure but as you identified there's so many other things that make it hard to do it in in the real context right <clears throat> right I do like how when you were referring to Kevin and I, you put supervision in air quotes, which the listener wasn't <laughs> able to see. But um, I'm curious, like, so the standard kind of typical teacher who uh, receives training um, prior, you know, teacher education training, like what, like, what are they prepared to do in terms of working with autistic students? Anything at all? And is all of the kind of work that you're talking about, is that all kind of like after they've been kind of thrown into the fire as a, as a real world educator? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of camps, right? So if you've been through teacher training a long time ago, you probably only got one lecture on autism because the prevalence rates were a lot lower back then. Um, and I'm sure you've seen the new CDC data a few days ago where the numbers have jumped to one in 36 youth in the U.S. have autism. And so I think if you're going through a teacher program now, you probably have a course on autism. So that looks very different where you get more time to really dive deeper and learn about the different supports in place that typically work. Um, for autistic children. Uh, so I think it looks a little bit different. And so I'm talking a little bit about the pre-service training, but I'm also talking about the in-services that teachers often do while they're on the job. So they're required to get these continuing education credits and sign up for different courses. You know, and one of them could be autism related or support related to special education. Um, so that's also another avenue for which we could train um, in, these, in these different interventions and supports. And, you know, the field is always changing. There's always new stuff out there. And I think the challenge for at least teachers in schools and educators in schools is that Oftentimes we pluck something that's been developed in the university setting or a clinic setting, and then we try to move them into schools, and that fit isn't always there, right? So we talk about what a square peg in a round hole, and that's typically what happens. And so we have seen a lot of implementation efforts around autism supports fail um, because things just aren't meant for that setting. Curious what how you've been applying implementation science to try to address this, this gap that you're describing. Yeah, we've been really fortunate to do a lot of redesign work and be really thoughtful, planful, and intentional about how we think about what needs to be redesigned. And I think the best part of that work is that we're inviting the stakeholders to the table. So we talk to district folks, we talk to building administrators, we talk to educators, both in general education and special education. We talk to paraeducators who are often assigned one-to-one -to, -one to support autistic children. We talk to the autistic children themselves and their caregivers. And we're really trying to understand a more holistic picture of how these interventions can be used in schools and what's the best way to move forward, right? So some policy in schools might not be the same if I'm doing this intervention at home or in a clinic or university setting, or some things around having to engage the peers won't be something I need to consider if this is a one-to-one -one intervention elsewhere, right? So there's a lot of, I think, contextual things that are happening. And I think the best thing you can do if you're interested in this work is to listen and really trust the expertise of the people in that setting and let them kind of guide your work. And so we've been really fortunate to do that in redesigning both interventions and also implementation strategies for um, supporting autistic practices. Uh, I mean, that leads to a question. I wonder if you could describe, you know, how you're doing that, how you're sort of connecting stakeholders and interventionists and um, in, an, in a current project that you're doing right now, maybe. Yeah, so we have this one project right now where we're redesigning in um, an implementation decision-making toolkit called ActSmart. Uh, don't ask me what that stands for. I won't be able to tell you off the top of my head. Um, uh, actually, I might. Autism Community Toolkit, Systematic Measures for Adopting Research-Based Treatments. Go me. Um, uh, so, so that is an adoption decision-making selection tool um, that has been created for community agencies that specialize in working with autistic individuals and helping them really be thoughtful and planful and systematic in how to adopt or not adopt an evidence-based practice. And so we are redesigning that for use in middle and high schools right now to support autistic um, teenagers and adolescents. 
And so the kind of first step is that we just want to talk with everybody. We want to talk with all the people who are involved in these funding decisions, on these planning decisions, on figuring out which supports to use and for whom. And we wanted to talk to the autistic teens in, in terms of like what was helpful for you when you're in middle and high school or what did you wish you had. And then we wanted to talk with the caregivers in terms of really understanding their role and what their worried what their worries were and hopes were for their um, children. Um, and then we wanted to talk with educators in terms of what's realistic. Can you actually do this, right? Do you have the time and the space to do this? And then we talked with principals and the building administrators and also the district admin in terms of really understanding how does this fit with all the other practices and initiatives and priorities that you have in your school and your district? Because oftentimes we hear, well, we can't dedicate this much time to autism because there's only eight kids in my whole school or there's only 10 kids in my whole district or whatever it is that we can't spend this much time, money, effort, et cetera. Um, so that's, that's I think, the struggle that we're, we're dealing with now. And so, so that was the first step is really talking to everybody and really understanding the problem, understanding areas that we might have potential pitfalls in terms of using these strategies in schools. And then uh, what we ended up doing was um, convening some expert advisory boards of researchers who do this work in schools and around autism and implementation, and then practitioners who um, have different roles. So again, district level folks, building level folks. And then my, my favorite has been our expert advisory board of autistic young adults. So they're recently out of high school and they're reflecting on their experiences and also telling us what we're doing right and wrong. And it's been such a refreshing experience because sometimes you know we're not even aware about the language that we use and how um, impactful or harmful that can be in our survey instruments or even in our daily language. And so that's been really helpful to have their perspective and also tell us like what visuals would be the most helpful to kind of clearly communicate what we're trying to say. And yeah, so that's been really fun talking with them um, as, as well. Um, so that was our kind of second step. And then our third step was what we would call these um, user testing sessions. We did these cognitive walkthroughs um, with a different user groups. Um, so folks who might be using the toolkit either at the district level or at the building level or being the ones implementing, so the educators. Um, so we, we just wrapped that yesterday night. Um, so we did a lot of those um, walkthroughs as well. And then we're convening with our expert advisory groups again to show them all the changes that we've made and really pick their brains about our modification blueprints. If we missed anything, if things are not clear or could be better um, or things that still need to be removed. Um, so that's been something that we have been doing uh, then. And then we'll, we'll, we're gonna launch our pilot um, this May and June. And then after uh, we learn a little bit more from the pilot, we'll reconvene with our advisory groups again um, to, again, pick their brains and really understand what else we can iterate on to make this tool as useful and helpful and usable as possible. So you're really, <clears throat> I mean, ultimately the tool is some kind of survey evaluation instrument, if I'm hearing it. Is that right or is it something bigger than that? Um, I think it's bigger than that. So, so this toolkit has four different phases. And the first is really that assessment piece to understand, you know, we added a piece about the district assessment, really understand what's happening in the district and really understand what's happening in the school level. And then we also added a piece for um, at the student level too. Um, and the students didn't like the word assessment or survey. So we're calling it a, what do you need to know about me? Um, and so that is what we're really trying to get a sense of and understand. 
And so that's the first phase. And then the second phase is really their decision to adopt or not. And so that's the school's kind of feedback. They've gone through all the cost and benefits. They've gone through all the kind of anticipated trainings and implementation efforts. They've gone through kind of crunching the numbers, how this fits with other initiatives and priorities and practices that are currently being implemented. Mm-hmm. And then they decide, do I want this practice or not? Or do I adopt it or not? If they choose to adopt it, that initiates phase three, which is the implementation phase. So active training happens then, the modification blueprint gets, I'm sorry, the adaptation plan gets Mm -hmm. um, completed. And then their implementation plan gets completed and goals get written around that. And then the fourth phase is the sustainment phase. Um, and that's really if they can keep it going. Um, um, and uh, yeah, so that's that's the four phases of it. And we're really thinking about how to retool it. Because mm-hmm. in a school setting, we're really limited to about six months of the, of the calendar year to do this work. Um, and, and you, you really know, got... That's not enough time. Yeah, yeah. And you really got... It's just impressive how much you got stakeholder input on all aspects of this sort of for all phases. So that when you're thinking about everything from evaluation to selection to adoption to sustainment you're sort of going into this saying we already know what a lot of the key stakeholders from our artistic our, our, our autistic sort of um people to are the people that are supposed to be supporting them you sort of have everybody's perspectives how, how do you feel like that process changed how you would have done it had you sort of just sat in your office and thought up uh you know something which is kind of the way i do most of my research so just sitting around <laughs> and think and then i write something down and see if my p value is less than 0.05 and has those pretty stars next to it well, I think you're smarter than I am because my best ideas come from the people that I work with in the field. And I really want to create meaningful change that's going to be helpful to them. And so I think listening to some of their kind of struggles and um, pain points where they have identified that this toolkit is not going to work or like this is too long. So when, when we first started um, the first step, you know, people told us like, this is way too long. You need to cut this down. Like we cannot spend an hour filling out this assessment and it's an aggregated report of what the school would look like or what the district would look like. And so people were really mindful to let us know what to cut and like what's relevant and what's not relevant. And like, this doesn't make sense. This is above my pay grade, for example, all the questions related to funding and funding revenue streams and um, potential sources of funding for new programs. People, the educator said, that's my principal. And the principal said, that's my district. And so we really thought about like, how do we carve out unique pieces of this toolkit for uh, like everyone to give their input on? So I think it's really been a helpful process. And I don't think I could have sat around and, and, and put together anything closely related to what we have now if I were doing this work by myself in my office. Or you may have made a lot of mistakes or, or, or just you would have put out stuff that wasn't aligned with what was important to people or what worked for people. That's really cool. I would have made something that nobody uses and probably doesn't work. <laughs> Fortunately, we don't have that problem in, in our field, right? People do do research all the time that's constantly adopted and, you know, changes the field every single paper we have. So um, I'm glad to see you're finally getting on that bandwagon with that. <laughs> <laughs> I love how what you described fits so well with community-based participatory research, but what I don't hear you using is kind of, I don't hear the words kind of falling into some of the trappings of community-based participatory research. And I'm kind of curious, like how, whether that's an intentional thing uh, and how you see CBPR and implementation science fitting together. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of synergy there, right? And I think we want to be careful not to just do things in the community, but really involving and engaging the community in a meaningful way where the input actually matters. 
because I've seen a lot of this work kind of be for show, right? Where we ask people in the community or we do stuff in the community, um, but it's not really including their voices. And I think one of the things that we have um, done in, in this study and others is really giving people that agency to craft things with us and collaborate with us to generate you know, activities or products that actually go into our final product, whether that's the intervention or the implementation strategy. So I do think that there are a lot of shared kind of methods and overlapping areas um, where both can complement and benefit each other. Um, but I do think that one of the common pitfalls is just doing that work in that space, but not really doing that work with the people in that space. Well, thanks for that answer. So I'm kind of curious when you, you know, when you think about your work specifically, you're really in a very pragmatic and practical way applying implementation uh, science tools in a community-based way to your research and feeding that back to the community in a way that they can use to make really quality, high quality decision making. I'm kind of curious if you have any suggestions about how the average implementation science researcher can incorporate these kind of more contextual factors or community input into their planned research. Uh, what types of like major constructs do they need to consider? What kind of methods should they maybe consider? And what, what are some of the major pitfalls they should avoid? Yeah, well, that's a very loaded question. <laughs> so I think, you know, again, from my experiences, I feel like there are a lot of organizational and contextual factors that matter. And I think it really depends on the question that the researcher has. And so for us, I mentioned I was pulling on this thread. And so when I when I started out this work and really understanding and training teachers in doing these autism interventions, like a lot of them, and, you know, there are a, a significant key results for that, Kevin, um, in some of our previously published papers that um, one of the biggest factors that mattered was an organizational variable called leadership. And so, so there's this theory that, um, you know, organizational implementation leadership, so those are strategic behaviors that leaders can do in an organization, will help kind of create a setting that's conducive for implementation. So we call that the implementation climate. So the leadership drives the climate, which then supports the implementation efforts. And so we kind of seen that theory replicated in schools as well, especially around the autism um, implementation of evidence-based practices for autistic youth. And so I think that would be something that I would really look at in other organizations if I was an implementation researcher or if I was really interested in schools and doing other forms of research, I think that would be a really helpful construct to pay close attention to because it's not about the actual doing the work. It's also about supporting the work and really making sure that work can sustain. And I think what we're learning is that a lot of these implementation strategies that harness leadership or target leadership or build leadership in more of a distributed leadership manner where that leadership is shared among a collective few or a handful of people, that implementation is more likely to be successful and, and sustain in that setting. Because what we're seeing, especially in schools among educators, is that there's been a lot of turnover since this pandemic happened. And so if we're training people in these interventions, that intervention is going to leave with them if they decide to leave that school. And so if you think about some of these contextual factors, you might have a buffer to kind of mitigate some of these pitfalls that we, we see in our train and hope efforts. Um, and so I think that context is super important. So I'd highly recommend implementation researchers who are interested in, um, you know, that organizational inner setting factors that that leadership be something that they look into. And then I lost the other part of your question. <laughs> I'm 
so sorry. Um, but um, I think you were asking me about some pitfalls to avoid. Yeah, and it's not, I mean, you already gave us a few too. So, um, but yes, yeah, some major pitfalls that researchers should avoid when uh, trying to do some of this work. Yeah, I think the biggest one that I've seen happen in autism, and there's just so many issues right now, I think, but I think it's really truly not including that autistic voice. So I think for the implementation researchers who don't do autism, it's really considering the voice of the end user, right? Who does this ultimately benefit? And how will this ultimately reach that audience um, or that um, target user? And so I think for us, what we're seeing is that a lot of these um, autistic people are not given any voice or choice in some of the interventions that are being offered. And that has been a huge pitfall because if they're offering something that's not relevant to that population, then it's not going to be used and it's not going to be sustained. Um, and so I think what we really need to pivot towards is figuring out strategies to enhance sustainment because we know that's a huge problem in schools. I think I alluded to the six months that we get to really do this research and then summer break happens and, you know, we come back next year and most of the things that we've done the year before are gone. So how do we kind of prevent that from happening in the future, especially if we know these are the things, quote unquote, that work? Yeah, schools in particular do have a hard reset, don't they? And then when that happens, uh, you know, unless something's been institutionalized, you know, any sort of knowledge carried by one person, especially if that person leaves or is no longer motivated to do that, or in schools in particular, whatever the flavor of the week might be, you know, whether it's grit, which Kevin loves. or fan. <laughs> Huge fan, super gritty. <laughs> Uh, or whatever else, you know, may push out whatever it was they learned last year, you know, for this this new flavor. And I think what? that's why we've really been thoughtful and focused on systems and structures and capitalizing on existing systems and structures that are in schools or in districts that can help support some of these implementation efforts. So that effort is not just centralized on one person. And again, in my case, it's usually the special educator. Um, and that responsibility is shared among, you know, a large group and each person has a unique role, right? So I was mentioning earlier about the funding versus the actual doing of the intervention. Um, so each person can play a role in creating that kind of climate that's conducive for implementation. So this is all really exciting stuff and great to, you know, hear your opinions and your thoughts and input on this. We're running short on time and I want to make sure we get to what is clearly the most important part of this interview, which is our quiz. So every week we like to invite our guests to partake in a little quiz. Now I'll, I'll, um, let me first by saying, what, why are you doing this at all? Well, you're doing this because if you, uh, get enough points on the quiz and we'll explain the scoring system after the fact, it's a sort of a post-talk, um, as we go scoring system, I will write an out of office message for you for the next time that you're on vacation or traveling. And so, uh, I'm, I've, somewhat known for writing uh, interesting out-of-office messages, mostly known and uh, about myself because I'm very braggy about them. Kevin, can you, can you give an example of one? Yeah, sure. So, okay, here's one. Uh, when, I got, when our whole family got COVID, um, I put an out-of-office message. Um, the out-of-office message said, damn it, COVID finally got me and my whole family. What, you say? You're not surprised given my, that my last out-of-office message was all about our vacation to Lake Chelan? <laughs> Look, buddy, irony died with the 90s. We're all just trying to make it one more day. I hope to feel better soon and return to my regular pace of replying to emails. But in the meantime, wear a mask and get your shots. <laughs> given the pace at which you know you have young children and the sickness that impacts your family, Jill, this might be really beneficial for you to have Kevin write your next okay. out-of-office. <laughs> I would Absolutely. love it. 
So, uh, uh, Mike, um, how about I, I'll start with the first sure. question. So uh, what we're going to ask you to do is to finish some song lyrics for us. <laughs> okay. Um, and Mike and I, because although we are famous around the Seattle scene for our karaoke duets, <laughs> we're going to try to not sing them to sort of give, not try not to give away the plot. And if you want extra credit, also name the movie that it comes from. So here's the first one. Down here, all the fish is happy. Under the sea. <laughs> I don't know well, so, so, so your job is to finish. What are the what? It's the next lyrics after yeah. that one. Oh man! Yeah, we actually started with a tough one. I'm realizing. Sorry about that. Well, that's from the Little Mermaid. Excellent. Good. Okay, extra credit. That's fifty points of extra credit. Happy. <laughs> uh, something on the ocean floor. Wait, hold on. <laughs> You got to sing it for me, Kevin. This is too hard. <laughs> Down here, all the fish is happy. Right here on the ocean floor. No, that's not right. <laughs> oh, I give up. <laughs> it, the, the correct answer is down here, all the fish is happy as off through the waves they roll. Oh man, that's too hard. So I think sorry, we'll give sorry. you, we'll give yeah. you uh, 25 <laughs> points of half credit because you did identify the song correctly. And uh, you even, I heard, I heard some of the correct, um, uh, <laughs> what do you call it? Um, melody in, in singing it. So we'll give you, there's a total of 75 points for identifying the, the song name and the Little Mermaid. Um, and again, oh, as man. I said, the scoring system is both capricious and arbitrary. <laughs> so, um, who knows how well you're doing and what even our, what the winning threshold is. Mike, go ahead. And it's, take the op- it's the opposite of tough, but fair. Um, okay, okay, this next one I think you're going to get. We should have started with this next one. It's super fragilistic expialidocious, even though the sound of it. <laughs> okay, this is from Mary Poppins. <laughs> All right. Oh, man. It just ri- it, Think of whatever rhymes with super califragilistic expialidocious. How many things can rhyme with that? I don't know and haven't seen this movie in a very long time. <laughs> Uh, sing it again, Mike. <laughs> it's super califragilistic expialidocious, even though the sound of it. Expialidocious. I don't know. <laughs> Is it sounds just like a diplodocus? <laughs> no. You giving up? Jurassic Park. Yes. Uh, Is something quite atrocious? Ooh, that's a good one. No, I would never have gotten that. <laughs> all, right, all, right, all right. All right. This next one. Life is your restaurant, and I'm your maitre d'. Come on, whisper what it is you want. I can sing it if you want. Oh, let's well, please, Mike. Please it's do. Be our guest from Beauty and the Beast, but uh, can you pick some more like catchy? <laughs> Finish the lyrics. Okay, sing it, sing it, Mike. Go for it. Okay, life is your restaurant, and I'm your maitre d'. Oh, actually, I don't know the lyrics. I don't know how this. All I know is, <laughs> come on, whisper what it is you want. Give me a little hint. I'll give you the next did two it, words. Did it, did it, did it, did it. That's you ain't. Oh, this is Aladdin. That's right. <laughs> 25 points for that one. Extra credit. What? This is the genie singing. Uh, Mike, do it again. I'm Life is your it. restaurant <laughs> and I'm your maitre d'. Come on, whisper what it is you want. You ain't. Nothing. You ain't. Not, you ain't nothing but a friend like me no you ain't got nothing but a friend like me it's a friend like me 
close. I'll give you five oh. points. The correct answer is you ain't never had a friend. Never had a friend like, like me. me. Yes. Thank you. Which to parse it is a little confusing because you haven't never had a friend like me. I think that implies that you have had a friend like me. I don't know. I can never get those double negatives. Okay, so let's just edit this out. We're halfway through. (laughs) Actually, sorry, we forgot to tell you, this is the point at which we do zero editing. Um, Usually by the time uh, Mike's son, Lucas, is editing this, he's just really pooped out and trying to finish. So he just, we just roll with this straight ahead. So if my mental math is correct, you currently have 135 points. um, And our threshold for the out of office message is still TBD. So we'll see. (laughs) But I'll just say you're, you're doing great. We're real proud of you. So unfortunately, I don't know. I don't know the tune to this one uh, because my kids watched this movie and actually they didn't really like it very much, even though everyone else loves it. But I think you will probably get it because your children have probably seen it much. He told me my fish would die the next day dead. He told me I'd grow a gut. And just like he said, he said that all my hair would disappear. And just like, wait, wait, oh, my God, I messed it up. Okay, that's negative five points for getting almost all the way there and then just dropping it. But okay, okay, you... I got this. Um, wait, I'm too embarrassed. I can't do it. Oh, okay. Where would you sing again? Okay, he this. told me my fish would die the next day dead. He told me I'd grow a gut, and just like he said, he said that all my hair would disappear. Now look at my head. Yes. Nice. <laughs> Very good. Very All good. right. That's 100 points for that. Your what movie does that come from? When your prophecy is read, it's from We Don't Talk About Bruno, Encanto. Nice. Wonderful. Another... I do know that one. Okay. <laughs> 25 like points that, for Mike. getting that one correct. My kids oh. will not watch that movie. We listen to the soundtrack all the time. They will not watch that movie. Oh, I love that they movie. Just refuse. Okay. Um, this next one No one's as slick as Gaston, no one's quick <laughs> as Gaston. <laughs> Okay, that's it. That's it. No one's slick no one. as Gaston. No one's quick as Gaston. <laughs> no one's slick as Gaston. No one's quick as Gaston. In a spitting match, no one. I don't know. <laughs> My clothes. <laughs> it's from Beauty and the Beast. That is a line from Beauty and the Beast. Oh, man, it's not that's this not line, line, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, okay, 35 points of extra credit for identifying the movie. But nothing about a spitting match. No one's neck that's incredibly thick as Gaston. Nice. Oh, that's nice. Oh, yes. man. Plus 150 points. You're really racking them up for this. Well All done. right. Very good. The last one. I killed an eel. I buried its guts. <laughs> this is from Moana. Yeah, yep. Yeah. I buried it good. You got to give me a little bit more. Sing okay. it more, Mike. <laughs> okay, I'll give you the start of the next line. Okay, I killed an eel. I buried its guts. Sprouted a tree. Now you've got coconuts. Nice. What's the lesson? What is the takeaway? Don't mess with Maui when he is on a breakaway. This is the one that I absolutely uh... by far know. I mean, who doesn't like the rock? Um, rapping, <laughs> rap singing his famous songs. All right, awesome. So, um, geez, my running total has you at um, 230 and then 380. You're just going to have to hear me do mental math. Four, you had clearly surpassed the bar 
of uh, that I was looking for of 450 points. I don't know how many points you have because I'm not going to do that uh, live as we talk. So you, congratulations. Jill, you have one, uh, one out of office message uh, for the next time you would like. So just email me and tell me where you're going and what you're doing or why why you need the out of office message, even if it's because I have a child home sick who is feverish and constantly vomiting on me. Um, and I will craft something for you to put up. Uh, I promise it will be um, witty. I promise it will be appropriate. I promise, I cannot promise anybody will find it funny and I cannot promise you'll <laughs> want to use it, but I'll do my best. That sounds great. Writing out of office messages is oftentimes the hardest part for me. So I will hold you to it. See, and I'm it's very like, disappointed you didn't choose any Frozen. <laughs> I should have. I do like the Frozen songs. It's true. It's true. Or me and the, the Tangled song. I have to sing that to Eden almost every day. <laughs> so, should have um, planted well, some seeds in there. <laughs> I know we only have a few minutes left. So I think I just want to ask, a, or we just want to ask a couple more questions. One thing, you know, we are hoping that people that listen to this are maybe being exposed to implementation science, trying to learn more. Are there any articles, an article or articles that you would sort of recommend as being, you know, essential reading for implementation scientists? Oh, goodness. That is a hard question. I think it really depends on where they are in that stage. Like, I think for me, when I was learning implementation science, it was really helpful to really get a sense of the, the frameworks that are out there. And so some of those papers are quite dated now. But I think if they were already doing this work, I would say some of the more kind of seminal mixed methods articles were really helpful for me because that was a new space. Um, so I'm thinking Larry Polinkis's paper. I can't remember if it's 2011. I don't know. That's probably wrong. Um, but that was really helpful in terms of the structure, because I think if you're going to do really good implementation research, you need to combine both quantitative and qualitative methods. I think some of the nuances that we've uncovered in the schools and understanding of educators' experiences and students' experiences are really from the richness of the qualitative data. And again, that was a whole new space for me. So I think that was helpful in, in, in helping me get started. And I think it really depends on what they're interested in, if they're interested in more individual level factors or organizational factors or policy factors that are beyond the scope that we didn't really talk about today. I, yeah, I mean, there's so many, I think, that they just need to really hone in on an area that's going to be helpful for their own studies or research. If you were to think about people in the implementation science field, who are some of the people that you most admire? I would probably say Renad Bates, who is, is just an innovative visionary and I think super creative and borrowing from different sciences and disciplines and applying it to whatever population setting is of interest. Um, and I think I've learned so much from her and I think uh, we kind of overlapped where we were when I was a postdoc fellow. I think she was junior faculty and uh, my love of implementation science sprang up from, from her. I took a class that she was teaching at Penn and it was fantastic and really got me thinking about some of these issues in schools that I never had thought about before. And so I would say she would be my my implementation guru. Yeah, we need to get Renat uh, on the show for sure. All right, so Jill, any shout outs that you want to give to special people in your work or personal life? Oh, that's a good one. Well, I think all of my collaborators, um, I, I think that is one lesson that I've learned in, in this work is that 
it's more fun to do it together with someone. Um, I think bouncing ideas off of each other is really great. So some of the work I talked about today is in partnership with Karen Bears over at the uh, Autism Center here at Tales Children's and with Kelsey Dixon, who's at SDSU. You should get her on your show too. She's one of my collaborators on that XSmart project. Um, and then I would say, you know, I am just really grateful for all these partnerships that we've had in the schools. I think my team is hearing me say this a lot, that our relationships with the schools are of the utmost importance to me. And um, I think we really need to do better in that space. Um, it's not just about the research, but it's really about what kind of can stick after we're gone. So I would give a shout out to all the schools that have tolerated my many studies um, and that have continued to still work with me, which is such a pleasure and honor. And I'm grateful for that. And, and do you have any, um, if people want to get in touch with you, I know they can Google you, but do you have any social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, uh, Friendster, MySpace, Tinder? Tinder. <laughs> I am a bit of a dinosaur. Um, I do have a Facebook account. I do have an Instagram account, though. I don't really look at either of those things. I would say just email me. I'm really happy to talk with anyone who is interested in my work or my space or who wants to partner. I think we've got a lot of work to do and plenty of work to go around. And I would love new partners um, whenever I can get them. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today with us, Jill. We loved having you on and I know you need to run to your next meeting. So I'll call it there, but thanks so much. Thank you thanks, both Jill. so much for having me. Bye-bye. Good to see you. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you liked today's podcast, please share it with your friends, colleagues, post it on social media, or write a Disney song about it. Maybe call it, It's a Small Change After All, or A Spoonful of Implementation Strategies Helps the Intervention Goes Down. If you didn't like today's show, feel free to protest us at your local school board meeting. If you want to talk to us, we're on Twitter. I'm at ThatISPodcast, and Kevin is at KMKing underscore psych. All of the comments and opinions expressed during today's show are our own. They are well-reasoned and insightful, and therefore are probably not endorsed by our grant funders or employers. Thanks for listening. On behalf of Kevin King and Joe Locke, we'll catch you next time. Oh, sorry. Should I have laughed at that? Would that help with the recording? <laughs> yeah, that would have been good. <laughs> okay.